Chapter One of Some Eminent Women of Our Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Some Eminent Women of Our Times by Millicent Garrett Fawcett. Chapter One Elizabeth Fry. Quote, Humanity is erroneously considered among the commonplace virtues. If it deserved such a place, there would be a less urgent need than, alas, there is, for its daily exercise among us. In its pale shape of kindly sentiment and bland pity, it is common enough, and is always the portion of the cultivated. But humanity armed, aggressive and alert, never slumbering and never wearying, moving like an ancient hero over the land to slay monsters, is the rarest of virtues. Unquote. John Morley. The present century is one that is distinguished by the active part women have taken in careers that were previously closed to them. Some people would have us believe that if women write books, paint pictures, and understand science and ancient languages, they will cease to be true women and cease to care for those womanly occupations and responsibilities that have always been entrusted to them. This is an essentially false and mistaken notion. True cultivation of the understanding makes a sensible woman value at their real high worth all her womanly duties, and, so far from making her neglect them, causes her to appreciate them more highly than she would otherwise have done, it has always been held, at least in Christian countries, that the most womanly of women's duties are to be found in works of mercy to those who are desolate and miserable. To be thirsty, hungry, naked, sick, or in prison is to have a claim for compassion and comfort upon womanly pity and tenderness. As we shall see, if we look back over recent years, that never have these womanly tasks been more zealously fulfilled than they have been in the century which has produced Elizabeth Fry, Florence Nightingale, Josephine Butler, and Octavia Hill. Mrs. Fry was born before the beginning of this century, in 1780, but the great public work with which her memory will always be connected was not begun till about 1813. She was born of the wealthy Quaker family, the Gurneys of Norwich. Her parents were not very strict members of the sect to which they belonged, for they allowed their children to learn music and dancing, pursuits that were then considered very worldly, even by many who did not belong to the Society of Friends. The gentle poet, William Cowper, speaks in one of his letters, written about the time of Elizabeth Fry's childhood, of love of music as a thing which tends, quote, to weaken and destroy the spiritual discernment. Mr. and Mrs. Gurney, however, seem to have been very free from such prejudices, as well as from others which were much more universal, for their children not only learnt music and dancing, but also, girls as well as boys, Latin and mathematics. Mrs. Gurney seems to have discerned that she had an especial treasure in her little Elizabeth. She is spoken of in her mother's journal as my dove-like Betsy. 
the authoress of the biography of elizabeth fry in the eminent women series says quote, her faculty for independent investigation her unswerving loyalty to duty and her fearless perseverance in works of benevolence were all foreshadowed unquote, in her childhood she had as a young girl what appears to us now a very extraordinary dread of enthusiasm in religion one would think that if ever a woman needed enthusiasm for her life's work elizabeth fry was that woman but she confesses in her journal written when she was seventeen years of age quote, the greatest fear of religion because it is generally allied with enthusiasm perhaps the truth is that she had so deep a natural fount of enthusiasm in her heart that she dreaded the work that it would impel her to when once it was allowed a free course she had a very strong innate repugnance to anything which drew public attention upon herself and only the imperative sense of duty enabled her to overcome this feeling in her heart she said what her master had said before her quote, father if it be possible let this cup pass from me Unquote. when the sphere of public duty first revealed itself to her she records in her diary what it cost her to enter upon it and writes of it as quote, the humiliating path that has appeared to be opening before me Unquote. it must be noticed however that in her case as always the steep and difficult path of duty becomes easier to those who do not flinch from it in a later passage of her diary the public work which she had at first called a path of humiliation she speaks of as quote, this great mercy in the little book to which reference has just been made we read that the first great change in elizabeth gurney's life was caused by the deep impression made upon her by the sermons of william savary it is rather strange to find the girl who had such a terror of enthusiasm weeping passionately while william savary was preaching her sister has described what took place Quote, betsy astonished us all by the great feeling she showed she wept most of the way home what she went through in her own mind i cannot say but the results were most powerful and most evident unquote. page eleven elizabeth fry by mrs e r pitman her emotion was not of the kind that passes away and leaves no trace behind the whole course of her life and tenor of her thoughts were changed she became a strict quakeress not however without some conflict with herself there are pleasant little touches of human nature in the facts that she found it a trial to say thee and thou and to give up her scarlet riding habit soon after this at the age of twenty she became the wife of mr joseph fry and removed to london where she lived in st mildred's court in the city the family into which she married were quakers like her own but of a much more severe and strict kind her marriage was however in every respect a fortunate one her husband sympathised deeply with her in all her efforts for the good of others 
and encouraged her in her public work although many in the society of friends did not scruple to protest that a married woman has no duties except to her husband and children her journal shows how anxiously she guarded herself against any temptation to neglect her home duties she was a tender and devoted mother to her twelve children and it was through her knowledge of the strength of a mother's love that she was able to reach the hearts of many of the poor prisoners whom she afterwards helped out of the wretchedness into which they had fallen her study of the problem how to help the poor began in this way a beggar woman with a child in her arms stopped her in the street mrs fry seeing that the child had whooping cough and was dangerously ill offered to go with the woman to her home in order more effectually to assist her to mrs fry's surprise the woman immediately tried to make off it was evident what she wanted was a gift of money not any help to the suffering child mrs fry followed her and found that her rooms were filled with a crowd of farmed-out children in every stage of sickness and misery the more pitiable the appearance of one of these poor mites the more useful an implement was it in the beggar's stock in trade from this time onwards the condition of women and children in the lowest and most degraded of the criminal classes became the study of mrs fry's life she had the gift of speech on any subject which deeply moved her from about eighteen o nine she began to speak at the friends meeting-house this power of speaking as well as working enabled her to draw about her an active band of co-workers when she first began visiting the female prisoners in newgate it is probable that she could not have supported all that she had to go through if it had not been for the sympathy and companionship of anna buxton and other quaker ladies whom she had roused through her power of speech just as she herself had been roused when a girl by the preaching of william savary the condition of the women and children in newgate prison when mrs fry first began visiting them in eighteen thirteen was more horrible than anything that can be easily imagined three hundred poor wretches were herded together in two wards and two cells with no furniture no bedding of any kind and no arrangements for decency or privacy cursing and swearing foul language and personal filthiness made the dens in which the women were confined equally offensive to ear eye nose and sense of modesty the punishment of death at the time existed for three hundred different offences and though there were many mitigations of the sentence in the case of those who had only committed minor breaches of the law yet the fact that nearly all had by law incurred the penalty of death gave an apparent justification for herding the prisoners indiscriminately together it thus happened that many a poor girl who had committed a comparatively trivial offence became absolutely ruined in body and mind through her contact in prison with the vilest and most degraded of women no attempt whatever was made to reform or discipline the prisoners or to teach them any trade whereby on leaving the jail they might earn an honest livelihood add to this that there were no female warders nor female officers of any kind in the prison 
and that the male warders were frequently men of depraved life and it is not difficult to see that no element of degradation was wanting to make the female wards of newgate what they were often called a hell on earth when elizabeth fry and anna buxton first visited this inferno there was so little pretence at any kind of control over the prisoners that the governor of newgate advised the ladies to leave their watches behind them at home mrs fry with a wise instinct felt that the best way of influencing the poor wild rough women was to show her care for their children many of the prisoners had their children with them in jail and there were very few even of the worst who could not be reached by care for their little ones even those who had no children were often not without the motherly instinct and could be roused to some measure of self-restraint and decency for the sake of the children who were being corrupted by their example so mrs fry's first step towards reforming the women took the form of starting a school for the children in the prison as usual in all good work of a novel kind those who knew nothing about it were quite sure that mrs fry would have been much more usefully employed if she had turned her energies in a different direction people who have never stirred a finger to lighten the misery of mankind always know so much better than the workers what to do and how to do it they would probably tell a fireman who is entering a burning house at the risk of his life that he would be more usefully employed in studying the chemical action of fire or in pondering over the indestructibility of matter the popular feeling with regard to mrs fry's work in newgate was embodied by thomas hood in a ballad which is preserved in his collected works and serves now to show how wrong a good and tender-hearted man may be in passing judgment on a work of the value of which he was entirely unqualified to form an opinion the refrain of the poem is keep your school out of newgate mrs fry i like the pity in your full-brimmed eye i like your carriage and your silken grey your dove-like habits and your silent preaching but i don't like your new gatory teaching no i'll be your friend and like a friend point out your very worst defect nay never start at that word but i must ask you why you keep your school in newgate mrs fry mrs fry's philanthropy was not of a kind to be checked by a ballad and she went on perseveringly with her work the school was formed and a prisoner named mary cormer was the first schoolmistress a wonderful change gradually became apparent in the demeanour language and appearance of the women in prison in eighteen seventeen an association was formed for carrying on the work mrs fry had begun it was called an association for the improvement of the female prisoners in newgate its first members were eleven quakeresses and one clergyman's wife public attention was now alive to the importance of the work and in the following year a select committee of the house of commons was appointed to inquire and report upon the condition of the london prisons mrs fry was examined before this committee 
her chief recommendations were that the prisoners should be employed in some industry and be paid for their work and that good conduct should be encouraged by rewards she was also most urgent that the women prisoners should be in the charge of women warders her work in the prison naturally led her to consider the condition and ultimate fate of women who were transported transportation was then carried out upon a large scale and all the evils of the prison existed in an intensified form on board the transport ships the horrors of the voyage were followed by a brutal and licentious distribution of the women on their arrival to colonists soldiers and convicts who went on board and took their choice of the human cargo mrs fry's efforts resulted in a check being placed on these shameful barbarities the women were owing to her exertions sent out in charge of female warders and they were provided with decent accommodation on their arrival like howard mrs fry did not confine her efforts to the poor and wretched of her own country she visited foreign countries in order thoroughly to study various methods of prison work and discipline on one occasion she found in paris a congenial task in bringing the force of public opinion to bear on the treatment of children in the foundling hospital there the poor babies were done up in swaddling clothes that were only unwrapped once in twelve hours there was no healthy screaming in the wards only a sound that a hearer compared to the faint and pitiful bleating of lambs a lady who visited the hospital said she never made the round of the spotlessly clean white cots without finding at least one dead baby everything in the hospital was regulated by clockwork its outward appearance was clean and orderly in the extreme but the babies died like flies the archbishop of paris was vastly annoyed with mrs fry for pointing out this drawback to the perfect organization of the institution but when once the light was let in improvement followed there were many other classes of neglected or unfortunate people whose circumstances were improved by mrs fry's exertions the lonely shepherds of salisbury plain were provided with a library after she had visited the desolate region where they lived she also organized a lending library for coast guardsmen and for domestic servants there was no end to her active exertions for the good of others except that of her own life she died at ramsgate in eighteen forty five and was buried at barking her private life was not without deep sorrows and anxieties she lost a passionately beloved child in eighteen fifteen in eighteen twenty eight her husband was unfortunate in his business affairs they suffered from a great diminution of fortune and were obliged to remove to a smaller house and adopt a less expensive style of living she did not pretend to any indifference she was far from feeling under these trials but they were powerless to turn her from the duties which she had marked out for herself the work which she had undertaken for the good of others probably became in its turn her own solace and support in the hour of trial and affliction in helping others she had unconsciously built up a strong refuge for herself thus giving a new illustration to the truth of the words quote, he that findeth his life shall lose it and he that loseth his life for my sake 
shall find it. Unquote. End of chapter one.